I tell you what, turn in your Bible to Genesis 3. We're going to be in 3.6. And uh, we're going to use a few passages today instead of one main, main text. And so I will jump in. And and listen, if this is your first time here or you've been once or twice, um, we've kind of making our way very quickly through a small, tiny series on the fear of man. Um, because we notice as Christians how, or really as, as humanity, that we have a, a proclivity to use and abuse and kind of manipulate other people to give us what we really want, which is security and approval and validation and love and significance, and we'll do that. And when we do that, people become very, very big in our eyes, and God becomes very, very small. Um, and so I kind of wanted to peek under the hood of that just for a, a couple weeks, really this last week, this week, and next week. Um, we'll finish with this next week. But in Genesis, I'm going to jump straight in. In Genesis 3, 6, this is what it says. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one, we have free ones on the table. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is a pretty pinnacle verse in the Bible. This is what we call the fall. This is where mankind imploded on itself and set a heritage, therefore, for the rest of mankind to carry sin and death with it. Um, It's a very, very important time where it's basically the beginning of where mankind had its declaration of independence set from God as our sovereign king. Um, And even though Adam's name is... On that declaration, and even though he wrote it, our names are on the bottom too. And that's the way it works. I mean, we are Adam. That's the whole idea behind this. That declaration is, is I don't need God. I can do it better. God is not enough. And I can glorify myself rather than glorify God. That is our declaration of independence. And the thing is, is it's inherent in all of us. It's genetically hardwired into you to slip towards that direction. To slip towards glorifying yourself. This is me included. I do it all the time. Glorify ourselves more than we would want God to be glorified. It's just part of us. I mean, we we are sinners. But listen, I know I'm starting off really hard. I know I brought the two by four really fast in this, but just bear with me, okay? I know we are sinners, but we, we are sin as well. My name is Luke, so whenever I sleep, I don't stop being Luke. Just because I'm not awake. Listen, whenever we sin, it's not just that we are sinning, we are sinners. I mean, we rebel, but we are rebellion. It's just who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our makeup. That was because of what had happened in the garden, that implosion that I've been talking about. So the thing is, is in order for us to develop our own glory, and in order for us to be glorified, it requires other people. We need other people to see us a certain way. We need, if we want to be worshipped, it takes worshipers, does it not? I mean, it's not good enough for us to just want to be wise. We want others to see us as wise. I mean, what good is it to be great if no one sees you as great? We need people to do that. And so you and me and everyone around you, we have this tendency to use other people to inflate our self-esteem, to inflate who we are and our insignificance. That's how we operate as people. Because as we shrink God and as we expand people, we do that to build our self-esteem, to build our significance. We become very dependent on those people that we try to get things from. 
we actually end up serving them as idols. I mean, people, think about it this way. People be, are like mirrors to us walking around. When I, when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, it defines my shape. It tells me how I look. It sees, it gives me qualities about myself. I can see the reflection. And what we do is we treat people as mirrors sometimes. They, they basically tell us who we are. And we want to be seen a certain way. I mean, these people basically begin to dictate to us how we should laugh, how we should look, how much we should weigh, what kind of position we should have in authority, whether we should even be in authority. We, we really receive a bunch from the mirrors walking around us. We need people to deliver up certain things a certain way. There's a deep need into us. And so what we do is we serve in order to get these needs met. And because of that, we become very enslaved. This is what we call the fear of man, and this is what we started off with last week. And I can't spend a lot of time really defining out what the fear of man is. If you want, you can go online. It's on there. But we use one scripture that I will put back up there. It's real important, and that's in Proverbs 29, 25, and it says this. The fear of man lays a snare. We talked about how that's basically a trap with bait in it. The thing about a snare is, is they never look like traps. They're traps that don't look like traps. It's false advertising. It says it's going to deliver something until you stick your big foot in there. And then it holds you until you die. That's what a snare does. But it says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so we saw last week how the first stage of stepping out of the fear of man is seeing our size in the context of God's size. Our smallness in the middle of God's bigness. And Isaiah taught us a lot in this, right? So Isaiah is thrust into God's presence. He's there and he sees some ridiculous things that eyes were not meant to see. He sees God sitting on high and an exalted throne above all authority in the earth. His, his big majestic robe was filling the temple and these big angels on fire with six wings dive bombing in with coals and singing so loud it's shaking everything and there's smoke everywhere and he sees all of this and he's like what is going on the only way he could respond is to say woe is me I'm ruined woe is me Isaiah taught us that really the question that you and I need to be asking ourselves as we deal with the fear of man is not really how can I get others to see me a certain way How can I feel better about myself? That's not the question we should be asking. We should be asking, why am I concerned about my self-esteem at all? Even as a pastor, even as a Christian, I'm not here how, I'm not trying to tell you how to get God to build into your self-esteem and make you seem great instead of the world. The question we really need to be asking is, why are we so concerned about the way we look at all? Why are we so concerned about how people see us? Why is self-esteem so central to how we look at life? You know, we tend to see God a lot smaller than Isaiah did, don't we? We're not in God's presence. I've not seen him high and exalted on his throne. I've never seen an angel. I mean, I married an angel. All right? Points. But we've never, I've never seen anything like that. And so what do I do? I do the same thing you do. I do the same thing that creation does. We all start to make ourselves bigger. Instead of being focused on the glory of God, we become very intoxicated, fascinated, postured towards ourself and our own needs. That's the way we slip. The truth is, is our culture doesn't help. Our culture, the way it's set up, it kind of breeds us to see ourselves as very needy people. Now, I'm not talking about needs like biological needs, like I need food, I need a roof over my head. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more of an inner felt need, a psychological need that we have. Make significance, approval, 
acceptance. That's what I'm trying to talk about. Our culture really breeds us to see ourselves as incredibly needy people. And listen, our heart agrees very fast. We see ourselves as needy people. Our needs, they must be met. And what does it mean for our needs to be met? It means that we're happy. We're happy. We're more comfortable. We see ourselves with a higher esteem. We feel better about ourselves. And when our needs aren't being met, we start to feel very victimized, very unsatisfied, very unhappy, right? So we grow up thinking in this culture that our needs are met by other people. That we need something and it has to be supplied by someone. So all of our happiness is in the hands of creation. The men and the women walking around you. We see ourselves as people that in order for us to change, grow, succeed, be happy, someone has to do something. If my wife would just do this, I could grow. If my husband would just do this, then I would be happy. If the kids would just do this, if the guys at work would just do this, if my professors would just do whatever it might be. If someone would just do something, then we could grow. But really, my happiness is in their hands. We are brought up in a culture to teach us, that teaches us, that we're very needy. We're victims. Victims of our spouse, our government, education system, right? A marriage that we look back on and we regret, unwanted pregnancy. All our happiness is always in the hands of somebody else. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I'm not going to tell you how old, but when I was a kid, there was this revolutionary TV show that came out, right? I mean, when it came out, I thought, are you kidding? That's going to be on TV? That's radical. Why, that's radical. I remember freaking out. It was the People's Court. (laughs) Joseph Wapner. He came on, and it was fascinating to me that there would be a show with a judge that would actually be realistic in the fact that there are two people with a disagreement with no lawyers, and they were going to plead their case before a judge, and he was going to render judgment right there. You got to watch it all in between commercial breaks. Someone was going to have to pay a lot of money, and someone was going to blab to the cameraman in the hall on the way out how they got robbed, you know? It was always that format, and that fascinated me. I loved it. I loved watching, and of course I graduated to other court shows and everything, but the people's court was fascinating. I mean, I start to kind of bet on who was going to win. Y'all ever do that when you watch it? You go, I know who's going to win this case. I'm not even a judge. I know who's going to win this case. You know? It's always the person with their shirt tucked in. They always make copies of receipts. Isn't it always true when the judge goes, do you have copies of these receipts? And the person goes, no, I don't. On the other side of the TV screen, I'm like, you really should have made receipts. You know? And if you're a girl and you start crying, that's points. You should take notes in case you ever end up on something like this, right? It became such a part of our culture to be taught that you were a victim of somebody else. And if they would just do something, then you could be happy. This is indicative of it. Know how many court shows there are on now? I counted. There's no less than 17. 17. Right? Why? Because it's easy to understand. It's easy to be, it's easy to relate to this because all of us have felt robbed at one time. It's relevant television programming because someone did something to us and we are where we are because of someone else. We are controlled by what others think and what others do to a certain extent. That's what at least goes on in our head. And for in order for us to succeed, it requires someone else to act. For us to be validated, someone else needs to move. They need to do something. So the premise behind all of this, if you were to distill it and reduce it down to a kernel, it is that others affect my life. 
That is, that is the summary of the fear of man. Others affect my life. Others affect me. They control me. And we live. And if others, listen, if others can affect our life, then we will always serve who it is that we think can affect us. And if we serve them long enough, they become an idol. And if they're an idol, then we become trapped to them. That is the fear of man. That's the cycle, the downward cycle that we get into. I mean, like me so I can feel better about myself. Like me so I can feel respected. Validate me so I can feel comfortable. I mean, these are the questions, these are the declarations of our heart, even though we would never say them with our mouth. And then we ask ourselves these internal questions. What would it take to get that person to like me? What would it take to get this person to validate me? What would it take? And as soon as you think you figure out what it is, you will do whatever it takes to get them to see you a certain way. Others affect your life. It's the fear of man. Take our desires, which aren't so bad. It's not a bad desire to be significant, to to want to be a part of something. That's not a bad desire to be loved. It's not a bad desire. But when you make them demands and you staple them to other people and you demand that they meet those needs, those selfish, lustful needs in your life, well, that's a sin. That's a sin. So the popular view of psychology for us, from our culture, and it has dripped into the church, is that we are cups. We are cups or tanks or some receptacle with a leak. Right? And we're supposed to fill these cups with the opinions and the words and the demonstrations and the acts of others towards us. And the higher the cup gets, the more satisfied we feel because our self-esteem starts to expand. But if people are not feeding our self-esteem and our ego, the cup drops, and there is a leak in the cup. The cup never really gets full, does it? I mean, it never really, really gets full. You know, if you remember anything, remember this. You will always be controlled by what you feel like you need. You will always be controlled by what you feel like you need. If you feel like you need significance and respect, you will end up serving whoever will give it to you. You will do and say whatever it takes to get the product that you want. The Bible says this is a trap. It's a snare. It advertises something it will not deliver on. Right? I mean, let's take... So last week we did a lot of heavy, heavy application. We took certain people groups and looked at what fear of man could look like for single ladies and husbands and wives. I want to shoot a little bit more broad with you. Okay, and, and give you some application points to help you understand this a little bit more. Oh, let's take pity parties. Pity parties, right? That's what Matt calls a, a you party. Oh, let's have a party for you, right? I love that terminology, man. Pity parties, or if you're in a fight with your spouse, it's called the silent treatment, right? Let's take this as an example. What is going on in that? What does your heart really, really want whenever you're having a pity party? I mean, just yell some out. Control? You want control? What else does your heart want? Attention? Revenge? These are good. Because I know no one in here has ever had a pity party, so I know this is difficult for you. These are good. What else? What are you saying to the other person? What are you saying to the people around you in your gut when you have a pity party? You hurt me. Yeah. And not just hurt me, you hurt me bad this time. I mean, this time you did it. And this time you crossed the line. And I want you to see it. I want you to notice how bad I hurt, right? Yeah, I'm hurting. Just ask me, I'll tell you all about it. If you dare ask me, 
I'll tell you. I'll bleed all over you. I'll tell you everything. See me as a long-suffering martyr. You know, don't you see what I'm having to put up with? Can't you tell by my, my downcastness? Can't you tell? I'm really good at the pity parties, you can tell, you know. I'm really good. I want to be seen, whenever I have pity parties, I want to be seen as the hero. Isn't that what it really comes down to? Look at what I'm having to deal with. Oh, my life is so tough. Oh, yeah, it's tough. You don't even want to know. I won't even tell you everything, you know. What am I doing? I want them to see me as a hero. I want them to see me as the one who's fighting, the victor, the one who's getting through it all. You see how gross it is? I mean, see when you really think about it, what I'm trying to get from other people because my leaky love cup just isn't full enough? I want you to see me as a hero. Love me, like me. Think I'm a stud because, all, yeah, my life is tough. Can't you? Th- does that help you see me better? I mean, do you see how that works? It's important that we think through these. You can't really bring the gospel to it unless you actually know what's going on. Because the gross thing about that is who's the real hero? Christ. The gospel is that I'm trying to replace Christ, who is my hero. I don't need to be the hero because I have a hero. We're going to get into that here in a little bit as well. I'm going to unpack that, our desire to be validated in pity parties. But what about defensiveness? Y'all know anyone? I know you're not defensive, but do you have friends that are defensive? Right? What's going on there? Whenever someone is defensive, maybe maybe you got in a fight with somebody and you act defensive or something breaks somewhere around you or something goes terribly wrong and someone gets defensive, what is your heart saying there? Throw it out. Give me some examples. Protecting your pride? That's good. These answers are better than mine. Huh? Don't respect me? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Come on. Huh? Matt. Matt says you're more wrong than me. Matt is good because it says, listen, we're both wrong, but let's face it. My wrong is less wrong than your wrong. Right? What's another one? Give me one more. Do what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm not stupid. I can see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, me, I throw my arms up. I didn't do that. What my bad? <laughs> what my bad? I'm not the type of dude that has a bad. You know what I'm saying? That's what I want to do. That was your bad. There is a bad. It's not mine. That's what we do. Why? Because we want to see be seen as someone who is always right. Because right people get respect. Right people get accolades. Right people get just significance. But if you're the person that did the bad, you don't. So we want other people to go, you know what? You were right. That wasn't your bad. That inside of us, that's like, oh, my cup's being filled. My little leaky love cup is being filled right now because they said it wasn't my bad. You see how that works? Give me some other examples. What are some other things we can do? I mean, I gave you a couple freebies with the pity party and the defensiveness. What's a couple others? I mean, just start yelling about what are some things that we can do that it's obvious that we're getting a felt need, an inner felt need met? It's a little hard. Fishing for compliments. Yes, does anyone... Oh, the shirt was so expensive. You know? Well, yes, it is new. Thanks for asking. You know? Or whatever. I made that up. But give, give, give me another one. Come on. I see they're arguing over here. You see how sneaky it is? 
Boy, you're such a good guitar player, Chase. Yeah, you know, not really. There's better out there, you know. You know? He's never done that before. He usually says, yes, I am good. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) Right? What about the person that says sorry all the time? This was me all through college. I bump into you, I'm going to say I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you. But if you bump into me, I'm going to say I'm sorry too. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All the time, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry for being alive, sorry for being here, you know? Why? Because I want them to like me. It's a very simple, simple, quick way to get someone to like you and think that you're polite, right? What about a girl, a woman who's been beaten and keeps going back to the same man over and over again, right? You see how that works? What are they doing? They're getting their tank filled. They're getting their tank filled. What about people who are promiscuous? I mean, do they have their significance pinned on one thing? Is there only one thing or two things that can fill their tank? Do you see whenever you start to diagram out some of our sins, it really is an attempt to get things from people. And what we do is we use people. You can't love people if you're busy using them. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Right? The cup never gets full, does it? It never does. Instead, we just end up being controlled and dominated by this landscape of deep needs that we have, these inner felt needs. Now listen, this is where you would expect me to say, right here is the very predictable thing where a pastor says, or is supposed to say, but God will fill your cup. But God will fill your cup. You don't have to get it filled in the world. You can come right on into the church and God will fill your cup. That's what you'd predict. That is the typical obligatory thing that a pastor would do, right? And listen, spiritually that is true. Spiritually, God does fill your cup, okay? So, God does surgery, heart surgery of a sort, where he'll take, like Chase's, I have to use him as a good example since I made fun of him. God will take this, before he was a Christian, took a cold, hard, stony, crusty heart that didn't beat for anything and pulled it right out of his chest and replaced it with a live, beating, coursing, living heart. And some might say, but I knew Chase before he was a Christian, and he was caring then. He was a caring guy. He helped me out. He jump-started my car, and he cried with me when my girlfriend broke up with me. I mean, I, I like Chase. Yes, but the difference is, is with a new heart given to him by the Holy Spirit, he sees as Christ saw. He feels what Christ feels. There's an enabling thing that the, only the Holy Spirit can bring. That's called regeneration. When the Holy Spirit rushes in, swaps our heart out, we see our sin, can cry out to God, and he rescues us. That's true. We're full of the Holy Ghost at that point. That's true. Our cup is full. But what about your inner felt needs? What about those things deep down inside? Because the church will tell you, a lot of times, pastors will tell you, that God will fill your cup as well. God will fill it. Better than the world. And all we do as a church, as pastors, when we do that is we validate your selfish needs. But just bring more validation to it. Okay? These needs that are limitless. There's no bounds to your lusts. Make no mistake. There is never a point where the deep things that you really lust and have to just demand on people will ever get full. It will never get full. That's the whole nature of our lusts. They can't be met. They can't be. That's why when they've done studies on um, CEOs and Forbes 500 companies, some of the better top part of that list even, what they find out in the CEOs is, is that they usually have a deep, deep, deep insecurity of being found out for being inadequate at their job. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, they're there. They got the job. 
I mean, they're some of the best CEOs in the world, not just the country, but the world. And they, just, they, they feel like they can't do it. They desperately want someone to say, you can do this. You can do it. It's limitless. It's limitless. It's amazing to me, really. So it's tempting for me to... And listen, the truth is, as a pastor, I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. I do. But I'm a bad pastor if I convince you that living for Jesus just means you meeting your internal demands and needs by Christian things. That's Christianizing our lusts. Alright? Let me explain. This is a lot where the prosperity message came from. Christianizing our lusts. What is the purpose for our felt needs if not to increase our self-esteem and elevate ourselves? Tell me. That is the only purpose, is to make us feel happy inside. Comfortable, warm and fuzzy, inflated in our self-esteem. That is the only pur- that's the only purpose. And I will tell you, and listen, hold the tomatoes. I was telling someone earlier, last week was an easy preach. This week, we'll push on you a little bit. But you're going to need to hear me out on this, okay? So give me some grace. Love me. All right? So I feel better about myself. But Jesus' goal, his purpose in the cross, was not to increase your self-esteem. Jesus did not come and die to elevate you. He did not come and die to make you feel comfortable and warm and fuzzy inside. That is not what happened. And I think it's real easy for us to Christianize our demands on other people. Even to the point where we start asking Jesus for things to make us feel better about ourselves. How many of you do that in your prayers? Think about it. We ask Jesus for things to make us feel better about ourselves. To increase and ramp up our self-esteem. Jesus, Jesus, my, my wife, she does not respect me like she should. Because Lord, you say that it's good to have a submissive wife. You say that it's good to be a submissive wife and she's not respecting me. Can you change that in her? Right? You see what's going on? You see how you just Christianize the lust if you've prayed that, men? It's easy to do. Why do you really want her to submit to you? Why do you really want that to happen in her? So you can feel better about yourself? So you can feel more respected? Man, it's dangerous, isn't it? Jesus, the guys, the guys around me, the bowling club, they don't make me feel elevated. They don't make me feel like my self-esteem is very big. Can you make me feel like my self-esteem is real big? Can you elevate me, Lord? I'm here <laughs> Praying for God to elevate you above other people. It's not really a Christian concept, right? Lord, I'm praying as a single woman. I'm not one. Lord, I really need a man. I want a good Christian man who will respect me, (laughs) right? Can you bring me a Christian man? Some of you, some of you pray that prayer, and some of you, it might not be such a great thing, right? Right? Because are you just going to use and abuse that person to meet the need, the hungry need you have inside in order to be pursued and significant and loved? Are you going to use that person to accomplish that? But Luke, Luke, I thought that Jesus came and he improved my self-esteem. I thought that was part of the package. No, that's, that's not true. He came to discontinue it. It's expired if you're a Christian. That's what he did. But Luke, I thought it was healthy for us to have a good self-esteem. I thought it was good. Listen, if you view yourself or esteem yourself as higher than other people and you use other people to get that to happen, that's a sin. (laughs) That's a sin, 
right? My inflated, my struggling self-esteem, it's expired. It's out of date for me as a Christian. Listen, esteeming yourself highly and above other people and more significant than other people and then manipulating others to get that to happen, to make yourself feel good inside, man, that might, I'm just going to submit, that's a very unchristian, anti-Christ thing to do. Right? We're abusing people. I know I'm being hard. I know. Listen, I know I'm being hard. But Luke, I think it's all right for us to like ourselves and see value in our lives. I mean, come on, pump the brakes. Really? You're being hard. Listen, there is value in your life, or else Christ wouldn't have come and died for you. There is value. You're created in the image of God. So we call the Imago Dei. Value. You have value, right? He came and rescued you, totally despite you, even though you didn't ask for it, deserve it, or want it. There's value there. He values you, or else he wouldn't have come. Put on skin, looked like you, taught you, served you, bled for you, died, rose again. He wouldn't have done that if there was no value in you. But sometimes, don't we try to ascribe more value to ourselves? Sometimes are we not satisfied by what the hand of God can bring us? We're very, very fast to run to the hand of man and receive even more value, if, if that could even happen. Listen, hear me on this. There is no cup. There's no cup. No leaky love cup. The tank doesn't exist. It's not there. It's not a Christian concept. It's not in the Bible. You can't find it anywhere. It's because it's not there. It's not in the Bible. Jesus said it with his mouth and he lived it with his life that God's best for us is not about our internal selfish flesh needs being met. It's not. He did not create us to require things from somebody else in order to be elevated and think of ourselves in a certain way. And now listen, there are commands in the Bible that tell you to love others, to encourage others, to consider others more significant than yourself. That is in the Bible. But just because it's upon you as an imperative to do that with others doesn't mean it's a requirement that you can require from somebody else, a demand you can make on somebody else. Think about that. We do that, though. Well, the Bible does say I'm supposed to consider others as more significant than myself. So, I mean, if you really flip it around, I'm more significant than everybody else. Right? People should treat me that way not in the Bible. Scripture actually leads us the opposite way. It teaches us to what? Deny. Deny the demands of our flesh. Isn't that amazing how we tank it upside down? It's quick. It's such a slippery slide. This is what Ed Welch says in a good book that you should get if you struggle with some of the things we've talked about both weeks. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a very good book. He says this, self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. They are meant to be put to death. Very simple. I mean, end of story right there. Move on. Right? Self-serving needs are not meant to be satisfied. They are meant to be put to death. We just don't have any biblical justification in feeding our ego. It's not there. So Luke, if we're not cups, what shape are we? I mean, Luke, I really deal with the significance thing. I really want to be pursued. I really want people to approve me and accept me. That really is a struggle for me. How am I supposed to look at that? If the world can't fill my cup... And the church and God's not really interested in elevating me and filling my cup. What am I supposed to do with these? That's a great question. I want to look at what Jesus did. The gospel is our answer in this, as it always is. It is again. Jesus denied himself. He was not shaped like a leaky love cup. He denied himself, right? He wasn't trying to inflate himself so he could feel happier at our cost and have his self-esteem nurtured and massaged. That wasn't really his M.O., was it? 
The Bible describes him in, in this really unique way that I really enjoy. It, it regards him as the second Adam, the second man, right? The second Adam, the better Adam, the Adam who did not fail in the garden whenever the test was put before him. Think about it, right? The garden that undid Genesis 3-6, which we started off with, where mankind imploded, that the better garden is where Jesus came and rescued mankind. Second Adam, better Adam, right? This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It says this in verse 47. Get the dichotomy of the structure of this passage. It says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Adam's first declaration, what we read earlier when we started this study today, Adam's first declaration in the garden is, I want it all at all costs. I want it all. That's my declaration to you, God. I want it. It's about me. And my need must be met. This is what Ed Welch continues to say. He says, Is it possible that the I want of Adam is the first expression of psychological needs? I mean, wasn't it with Adam that the momentum of human life started moving inward toward the desire of the self rather than outward toward a desire to know and to do the will of God? You see, Jesus, Jesus, the better Adam, was very, very, very satisfied in the glory of God over his own glory. Right? He wasn't led around by his emotions and the feeling in his gut. He wasn't catering and pandering to people to get them to feed him a certain way so that he would feel better about himself. He was a better Adam. He denied temptation to see himself inflated. Listen, I mean, the cross proves this fact, does it not? He wasn't crying out like a victim. We don't see that anywhere. That's why I had Jeremy read this passage earlier. I'm going to pick out a couple pass or just a couple verses out of Isaiah 53. He's going to put it up on the screen. Put up verse three, could you? It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't esteem him. He didn't get his self-esteem pumped up. They get ramped up in his life. It didn't happen. I mean, sure, we esteemed him and thought he was real cool and probably patted him on the back whenever he brought a couple fish and made a bunch of fish or raised a little girl from the dead. I mean, that's cool, Jesus, right? But what about Jesus when he was disfigured from being beaten so much we couldn't even recognize who he was? What did we do? We esteemed him not. We esteemed him the least when we should have esteemed him the most. And do I see him anywhere in the passages of the Bible cry out, What about me? What about me? Where's my pity party? Christ didn't do that. He denied that. Very, do, you, do you not think that was an urge in him? He's tempted in every way that we're tempted. There was an urge and a temptation in him to go, Hey, do you guys not see what I'm doing? I'm doing this for you. Do you not see this? Luke, how do you know he didn't do that? Verse 7 says this. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Man, it's amazing. Put yourself in his shoes. 
What would have been coming out of your mouth? My goodness, I would have been a total mess. I mean, hey, I might be willing to go to the cross, but you better be calling me a hero all the way. You know what I'm saying? I want a lot of people pat my back as I'm carrying the cross. And we're just not capable. Jesus is. This is the gospel, guys. He denied himself. He denied his flesh so that you and I would not be denied. He abandoned the demands he wanted to put on other people so that you and I would not be abandoned. He discounted what his flesh told him he needed so that you and I would not be discounted. He drank from the cup of God's wrath because you and I were just going to act like we had a leaky love cup the whole time. Do you see the gospel in this? He didn't elevate himself at our cost. He devalued himself for our benefit. I mean, Jesus shows us exactly how to deal with the internal felt needs in our life to be approved of and significant. He shows us how to do it. He didn't die to increase our self-esteem. Why did he die? Why did he die? Let's look at Isaiah 53, 4. I'm going to stay in that same text. I'm only going to read a couple of scriptures out of it. We're going to go from 4 to 6. And this is what it says. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. That's you. Let's personalize it. He's talking to you. Surely he has borne your grief and carried your sorrows, and you esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought you peace. And with his wounds, you were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, the gospel frees us from the need to secure esteem from mankind and creation. The gospel frees us from that. We don't have to do it anymore. We just don't. He's leading us to be, he's leading us away from a people that want to elevate ourselves and increase our self-esteem at the cost of others. He's leading us to a people who will actually say no and deny the flesh for the benefit of others. That's very, very Christocentric application he has for you and for me. So what is our new shape then? It's cheesy. Bear with me, all right? Because I have to have a shape since we started with a cup. That's what preachers say. You have to have another shape, right? Think of a mirror, all right? A mirror. Instead of like a vacuum and a black hole taking all of the gaze of creation to ourselves so that we feel amplified, elevated, expanded, however you want to put it, we actually reflect it. We reflect God's glory, folks. We can't give God glory because glory cannot be added to Him. He is all glorious. But we most definitely can reflect it, right? We reflect God's glory. That is our shape. We are conduits towards God. The beautiful things that you do, direct them to God's glory. The beautiful things that you say, God should be the hero. That is our new shape. We are mirrors. Do you have a need and it might cost somebody else? Eat it. Don't do it. Don't demand it from somebody. Husbands, don't demand it from your wife. Well, Luke, how is she ever going to learn if I'm not demanding it from her? You know? Love her the same way you're supposed to learn when Christ isn't hammering you for the same thing. He's giving you grace for crying out loud. Love her. Wives, same thing. Young men, same thing. Young wives, same thing. You'll be, you'll be tempted inside to demand something from somebody else. Christ shows us an opposite direction. He says, deny that very thing in you that just dies for approval. It has to be validated. 
stroked and petted. Deny that for their, th- that way you can love them correctly. Can't wait to talk on that next week. That's so important for us as a church. Jesus said, you know, as we look at this in John 17, 1, this is the proof text for what I'm saying right now. I got to fly. This is when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Isn't that an odd statement? Unique? That's interesting. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this, this is the, actually verse 3 is what I read when I became a Christian. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished what the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, this is what's going on. Jesus asked for God to glorify him, God the Father. Why? So that he could glorify God. (laughs) He didn't do it so that he could feel better about himself. He didn't say... God, would you please glorify me so my self-esteem will stop struggling? God, would you please glorify me so I can feel a little bit more warm and fuzzy inside about my place in life? We don't see any of that. Lord, I'm not feeling respected up here on a cross. Would you glorify me a little bit so I can feel a little bit more respect? Denied it. No, listen. And I'm, I'm going to try to end with this. I am ending with this. You and I, we live in a culture of victims. Not just victims, but abusers. People that abuse people and people that are being abused. That's the culture we live in. Right? Just like Isaiah said last week, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm a moral leper, God, and I live live among a bunch of moral lepers behind me. We're all the same people. The city of Knoxville, whatever city you live in, the area that you live in, you are around a people of unclean lips. A people that their love cup, they've been trying to get that tank filled their whole lives and they cannot seem to do it. The last thing they need is a missionary that's trying to do the exact same thing. That's the last thing they need. They don't need you trying to teach them how to Christianize their lust either. They need the gospel. They need to see Christ. They need to see the gospel say that those things that demand attention inside of you, they ought not be there. You could put those things to death and watch Christ did it. And he did it for us. It's a beautiful application for our neighbors, for the people we work with. They just, you've got to start working through this yourself. Some of you, listen, some of you, and, and we have this in the back. This, this will be my quick plug. We have this in the back. This is part two of the devotional that we're kind of writing to go along with this, to help you unpack this. There are certain things that can help you see where the fear of man really flares up because it's not always easy to see as we saw last week. Sometimes it's kind of hidden underneath the surface. Or underneath the surface. Where is it that you feel most awkward with people? Where is it, Christian, where you feel like you're in collision with people the most? A lot of times, there is a demand, there's a fear of man that's starting to rear its claws, right? Is there a certain person that it happens with more than other people? Some of you, it's your dad, a pastor. (laughs) Pastors get it all the time. People want pastors to think of them in such a way all the time. It is rampant, right? Our wives, kids, where is it? And so this thing will help you throughout the week kind of unpack where it is. If this comes up the most, feel free to take it. We have a bunch, okay? But where is that for you? 
What are you doing? Do you even know what the gospel says to it? Are you really wrestling with it? How does your fear of man inform how you see God? How does it inform how you think God sees you? 